kids. Mom needs more help inside. Hey. How many kids do you have? Three. Three? Yeah. What's it like being a dad? Mr. Clams has been sleeping for two days, Daddy. All right, just slow down a little Dad, bit. stop yelling at me. I don't think that. <gasps> oh, okay, okay. All right, and that is why we always wear our seatbelt. I am so proud of you, son. Run. Huh? Run, it's gonna blow! No! Dad, you are disgusting. Yeah, Dad, you are disgusting. This right here goes to your future, this right here goes to you, and this right here goes to God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How much does God get? What's wrong, beautiful? Trevor broke up with me. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> He's such a jerk. I, he broke up with me on a text message. You just replied. Dad, I can't believe you. He didn't deserve you. He didn't deserve you. One, two, three! <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for being so good to us. God has the coolest job. He can make clouds all day. Yeah, it does. But I think one of his very best jobs is when he made you. Daddy. Hey, what's it like being a dad? How much time you got? And dads, thank you so much for all you do. You spend your life investing in future generations so that they might indeed come and to know Jesus and to follow him. And so much of the culture around us belittles and minimizes the work that you do, but not the Lord. The Lord knows. The Lord sees. 
And indeed, what you do as a father is one of the greatest investments you will have in future generations. Thank you for all you do. You're not alone in your parenting and in your grandparenting. In fact, one of the purposes that God designed for the local church is for the church to come alongside families in the discipleship of their children. And so we get to work together as a faith family in raising and training our children to grow up, to love and follow Jesus. Westwood's, our mission is to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. And so much of what we do is about pouring our lives into the hearts and lives of others so that indeed, as we are training up our children in the way that they should go, indeed, one day they will take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Growing up, I spent so much of my time playing basketball by myself in my driveway, and I was often going one-on-one with imaginary defenders. And often when I was playing, I had this dream of playing in game seven of the NBA Finals. I wanted so badly to beat Michael Jordan, and oftentimes I would practice the last second shot and just hitting it right in his face. You see, there's a problem. When you can't dunk and when you can't shoot, you don't make it to the NBA. But let me ask you a question. Let's say you're an athlete and you reach the pinnacle of your sport, it's game seven, it's the Super Bowl, but it lands on a Sunday morning, what do you do? Do you decide, I'm not going to go and play, indeed, I'm going to gather and I'm going to worship with God's people? How would that impact those around you? What kind of pressure would you feel from the front office? from fans, even your teammates. Well, that is very similar to the experience of a man named Eric Lydell. At the time, he was one of the fastest people in the world. He was the Usain Bolt of the 1920s. He was shattering records with his speed. In fact, when the time came for him to run the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris, he was the favorite by far to win the 100-meter race. But there was a problem. They ran it on a Sunday morning. And he had a decision to make. Do I run for my country and win an almost assured gold medal? Or do I honor the Lord and gather with God's people? Well, Eric Lydell made the choice to gather with God's people in a local church. And so instead of running, he worshiped in a local church that day. You can imagine the pressure he felt from his own country. The Scottish Olympic Committee was pleading with him to run. Even the media was asking him to run. But for Eric Lydell, he had made a commitment that as a man of God, the Lord Jesus Christ comes first. And that is what the psalm writer is driving home in Psalm 112. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 112. We as a faith family are going to be taking times periodically where we take breaks from sermon series to look at different texts on special occasions. On Mother's Day, we spent time unpacking the woman of character from Proverbs 31. But for today, for Father's Day, we're going to be looking at the man of God from Psalm 112. Now, Psalm 112 is holding hands with Psalm 111. 
the two of them almost mirror one another. They go hand in hand like an old married couple walking through the food court of a shopping mall. They're step in step with one another. And what we see in Psalm 112 are five things that the man of God possesses. In fact, these five characteristics, these five C words that we're going to be seeing this morning, these are vital for you to become the man of God that he has created you to be. In fact, as, as your pastor, as, we're, as the Lord leads in the future, as we bring more and more people on our staff to lead our church, these are non-negotiables. These are five characteristics of men and, uh, men and women, but men in particular, of what it looks like for us to lead well, not only in the culture and in the world around us, but also in our very own homes. So notice here in the text the, these five things that the man of God possesses. Number one is this, Christ. Christ. This is the kingpin of all characteristics. This is the most important one. If you don't have Christ, then all of the other four are going to crumble like Cheerios on a kitchen floor. It's essential that you have number one. You see, Christ Jesus is the fountain from which all other godly characteristics flow. Look with me at Psalm 112, beginning with verse 1. The psalm writer writes, Hallelujah. Happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. That phrase, hallelujah, it means praise the Lord. It's a word of worship and adoration for who God is. But then the psalm writer connects happiness and blessing with the fear of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? You see, the man who fears the Lord first has nothing else to fear. Now, don't miss that. Do you long to be set free from fear? Then it begins with the fear of the Lord. You see, when fear creeps into your heart, it's because you have forgotten the sheer sovereignty of God. When you and I view our circumstances as bigger than the Lord, it is then that fear comes into our hearts. But here the psalm writer is saying, no, 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 no. It begins with a fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9, verse 10, Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You see, King Solomon equates the fear of the Lord with knowledge of the Lord. Okay, so the way that you know that you belong to the Lord is that you know him and you fear him, and they go together. The way that you, you, you know that you're in Christ is the fact that you, you know who he is in light of his glory, in light of his majesty. You fear him for who he is. Now, this kind of fear is not the kind of fear in which you run away from a boogeyman in a scary movie. In fact, the fear of the Lord is very positive. It's the fear in which you say, I see who you are. You are holy and you are majestic. You are perfect and right in all of your ways. And knowing who I am in light of who you are, knowing that you can indeed cast me into hell and you are right to do so. There's a sense in which we fear the one who can do that and has the right to do so. And yet we love him because by his grace he's chosen not to. He has provided a way out, a way you and I can be set free from his wrath through his son, Jesus, who at the cross satisfied God's wrath towards our sin. 
Jesus, our mediator and our substitute, makes it so that you and I are no longer afraid of his wrath. We now no longer have to run away from him. We now love him. You see, for, to become a man of God, it begins with knowing Christ, that there is no one higher, there is no one greater, and indeed the Lord Jesus Christ is the one in whom we must one day give an account. You see, every earthly king is a pawn in the hand of the king of kings. Jesus is sovereign. He's the one who's sovereign over all of creation. And indeed, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the one whom we fear. And yet for the man of God, it all begins with Christ. And yet notice verse 1, that the man who fears the Lord takes great delight in his commands. You see, a man who fears the Lord loves the Bible. You see, God's commands, they are good. They are life-giving. They are sweet to the taste. It reminds me of Psalm 1, where the psalm writer says, Blessed is the man who walks not according to the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf never withers. And in all that he does, he prospers. You see, for the man of God, we are people of the book. We are people who love the Bible. We delight in his commands. You see, to love Jesus is to love Jesus' word. They go together and they can never be separated. You see, to ignore the Bible is to ignore Jesus. To cast out the Bible is to cast out Jesus. For the scriptures reveal Christ, and it's through this book that we find him. Men, if you're going to be the husband and father and leader that God has called you to be, it is directly connected to you delighting in his word. Loving his commands, savoring his precepts, taking great joy and delight in what he has revealed through this book. One of the challenges we provided to our church this year is to be memorizing scripture. And in fact, out there in the atrium, we have the, the four impact station where we're challenging people to memorize one Bible verse per week. And when you memorize one, you, you drop that, that marble in there. And, and this, as your pastor, I'm, I'm in there with you. And so this week, I dropped another marble in there because I want to be memorizing the word. I want to be internalizing the word. We have already filled up one jar as a church of scripture that we've memorized, and we've now moved on to the second jar. Because the mark of being a godly man here is that he delights in the word of God. And see, men, if you're going to be the husband that God's called you to be, it begins with you delighting in his word. So do you know Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, it all begins here. It begins where you come to a knowledge that I am a sinner in need of a savior. And God sent his one and only son who went to the cross. And he died in my place. And the Bible says that he didn't stay dead. 
But on the third day, he rose from the grave. And those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus by faith, indeed, you will be saved. You will be rescued. You will be adopted. You will have an inheritance. You will be forgiven and redeemed because you will have Christ. You see, men of God, it begins at the cross. You must possess Christ. If you do not know Jesus, you cannot become the man of God that he's called you to be. It's impossible. It all begins by trusting and following Jesus. But when you trust in Jesus, it leads to the flourishing of others. Look there at the text at verse 2. It says, his descendants will be powerful in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. You see, a result of knowing Christ is that your children and future generations find blessing. Notice verse 2, who receives the blessing through your trust in Christ? Verse 2, your descendants. You see, those who are to be most blessed through your life are to be your children. You see, men of God, your greatest ministry is your children. This is who you give your life to. This is who you pour the most into. This is the investment that we give ourselves to. Your mission is to invest in your children who will go and impact their world for Jesus. This is what we do as husbands and as fathers and as leaders. We pour into future generations. You see, your greatest investment are the disciples that you make at home. Men. Give your very best to those who will cry the hardest at your funeral. Far too many men are giving their best to those who don't even care. May I say to you, you give yourself completely to Jesus, and then you take that faith in him and allow the Holy Spirit to pour into those around you, beginning with your children. You see, your faith in Christ should always lead to the flourishing of those around you, that indeed the love that you have for God pours into the love that you have for people. This is what we see throughout the scriptures and you see, when the man of God has Jesus as number one in his heart and in his life, Jesus overflows out of us into our children and into our grandchildren. Don't miss this truth. Future generations yet to be born will be impacted by your Christ-like decisions today. You see, how you lead today matters. How you love your wife matters. How you train your children matters. How you respond to traffic on 65 matters. How you speak to the umpire at the ball field, it matters. There are eyes that are watching you. And you are influencing future generations right now. So the decisions you make now will have impact long after you are gone. And so men of God, you pour your best into those who are in your family. You, you give them your best. Future generations will be blessed through your faithfulness to Jesus today. But Kenneth, I didn't have a dad when I grew up. Or, Kenneth, the dad I had was emotionally absent. Even though he was there physically, he didn't care about us, and he set a terrible example. 
Therefore, it's not my fault. Careful. There is no excuse for your negligence of becoming the man that God has called you to be. God, by his grace, has given you his word, he's given you his spirit, and he's given you his church. He's given you his word so you can know how to become the man he's created you to be. He's given you his Holy Spirit who encourages and teaches and leads you in the way that you go as you train up and invest and pour into and lead your family. He's also given you his church, other godly men that you can sit down with and say, would you teach me how to be the husband and father I need to become? I was in Dallas this week at the Southern Baptist Convention, and as I was taking an Uber ride from the hotel to the airport, I was riding with a 25-year-old guy from Ghana. His name was Joshua. And as we're talking, I'm trying to share the gospel with them, and he says, well, are you a husband? And I said, yes. And he said, how long have you been married? And I said, well, almost 14 years. He's like, wow. I said, well, are you married? And he says, yes, I've been married for one year. And then he asked me this, what is one piece of advice you would give to me as a husband? I thought, oh, that's a good question. And here's what I said. I said, your selfishness is your greatest enemy. But if you will deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus every day, you will begin to serve your wife the way that God intended, and it's then that your marriage will be blessed. And he looked at me and said, you must be a pastor. <laughs> Guilty as charged. He is hungry for someone to show and tell him how to become the man of God he needs to become. And men, you may not have had a great example growing up, but may I say to you, there are men in this room that you need to take to coffee and just learn ask questions, lock arms. Because if we're going to become the men that God's created us to be, we've got to do it together. So we see here in the text that first it begins with Christ. But I want you to see, number two, that the, the man of God possesses character. Character. Look at verse three. It says, wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Light shines in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Good will come to the one who lends generously and conducts his business fairly. You see, the man of God possesses a righteousness, verse 3, that endures forever. But this righteousness here is not our righteousness. We've talked about this a few weeks ago. It's the righteousness of Christ. You see, the moment that you turn from your sin and you trust it in Jesus, it is then that the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to you. It's accredited to your account. You are now righteous, holy, blameless in the sight of God. Not because of you, but because of what Jesus has done for you through the cross. So this righteousness, men, is something that we possess in Christ, but out of the overflow of the righteousness we possess in Christ, it now pours out into our lives. We know go and live out the righteousness that we have in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin become sin so that 
we might become the righteousness of God in him. So now because of what Jesus did for you at the cross, taking your sin, he takes your sin away from you and then he gives you his righteousness. It's a beautiful, holy exchange that takes place the moment you believe the gospel. But you see what's interesting here in the text in verses three through five is that you see the character of God on display. What the psalm writer is showing us is this is what God is like. Look at the text. Verse three, he is righteousness that endures forever. Verse four, light shining in the darkness. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is righteous. He is generous, verse five. There is justice, verse five. These are all characteristics of God. He's saying, this is what God is like. So now, men of God, we now become what God is like. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And so as you and I follow Christ, and as we are cultivating the character of Christ within us, we are in the process of becoming more like Jesus. We are, Romans 8.29, being conformed into his image, but we are also returning back to God's original design in Genesis 2 in the garden. So that long before sin came into the world, you and I are in the process of returning back to the garden of a right relationship with God, of living out the character of God so that we become more and more like Christ. That's what's happening here in the text. The psalm writer is saying that the man of God has the character of God. He is becoming more and more like Jesus. So the way that you do this is you, you read the Bible, you pray the Bible, and then you ask the Holy Spirit to so apply the word to your life, and then it's there that you grow. But I would also encourage you, find other men of character. Find men who are godly men. Ask them questions. Learn from them. One of the good gifts God's given to you is this church. And can I say to you, uh, there's a lot of pride in my heart and when I say it, but it's a godly pride. I love our staff. And we are full of men who I can point to and say, that's a man of character. There are men throughout our church, there are too many for me to name. May I say to you, there are many churches that pastors can't name anybody. But God, by his grace, has done that. The deacons within our church are just godly men that I would easily and quickly point you to as men that I would hold up and say, these are men of character and learn from them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. And so as men of God, that's what we do. We say to those around us, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm gonna show you the way. I'm gonna tell you the way so that we can become like the men that God's created us to be in Christ. Not only Christ and character, but number three, conviction. Look at verse 6. He will never be shaken. You see, the man of God who is never shaken stands firm upon the convictions that God has placed in his heart. He'll never be shaken as a man who stands firm when others rise up against them. Have you ever tried to stand in the middle of the surf at the ocean? The water comes and pushes against your chest and then it goes out pulling back on your heels. It is so difficult to stand firm in one spot when the water is hitting you in a continuous motion. Y'all, that's a picture of where we stand in our culture. 
We are being assaulted with messages all around us that is hitting us in the chest and trying to wipe us out at our feet. But may I say to you, men of God, we are men of conviction. We will not compromise. We will not acquiesce to the, the things of this culture. We're going to stand firm on what God's revealed to us. So like Paul prays in Ephesians 6 with the full armor of God, put on the full armor of God so that you might stand firm. You see, a man of conviction is someone who holds fast to his convictions even when it's not convenient. Convictions are never convenient. They're always going to be difficult to hold fast to, especially in a culture that is so quick to even be able to define certain things. I say to you, the culture around us can't even define gender. It can't define marriage. The culture around us has difficulty being able to say black is black and white is white. Two plus two is four. Absolute truth. What in the world? That is the world we live. But we as men of God, we cannot compromise even though it's not convenient. It's even more so that we're going to stand firm in the gospel with love in our hearts, but we will not compromise on the truths of the gospel. We cannot and we will not back down what God has clearly revealed in his word. This is where we stand and we can do no other. You will be tempted to capitulate to culture. You will be tempted to compromise on truth. And may I say to you, you need to choose now whose praise you want. The praise of the world or the praise of Jesus. You cannot have both. But there's coming a day in which one is going to matter a whole lot more than the other. And may I say to you, the praise of this world is vain. It's brief, temporary, and it's fake. We live for the praise of Jesus. So be a man of conviction and do not back down. Number four, the man of God possesses Confidence. Confidence. Verse 7. He will not fear bad news. His heart is confident, trusting in the Lord. His heart is assured he will not fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. You see, as a believer, you can have confidence in the Lord. You do not have to be afraid of bad news. You, who, you know the one who holds the future. You trust the one who ordains all things for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Note that this text does not say that difficulty will never come. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 5, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Suffering is coming. You cannot avoid it in this life. But the man of God is not afraid of it. He's not a man who is afraid of bad news that come his way. And this is a man, he is not arrogant. He is not prideful. He's not posting selfies on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram saying, look how awesome I am. No, 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 no. No, the man of God is quick to say, look how awesome Jesus is. Why? Because his confidence, verse 7, is in the Lord. But then, verse 8, men, verse 8 should put steel in your spine. Because here is a man who is not a passive pushover walking in fear. But you do not fear because in the end you will look in triumph over your foes. So, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of death? You have a risen Savior that's conquered that. Are you afraid of cancer? 
You have a Savior who will never leave you nor forsake you and has the power and the ability to heal you. Are you afraid of bankruptcy? The Lord Jesus is your provider. He will always meet your needs. So what are you afraid of? You see, the man of God is not afraid of bad news because he knows the one from whom is behind every news that he gets. You do not have to be afraid, even of death itself. See, men of God, when you have Christ and you have character and conviction, you can have confidence for who you are in Christ. You see, fear gets smaller when your view of God gets bigger. The gospel is always pointing you away from yourself and always pointing you to the one who's greater than everything you face, the Lord Jesus. Fifth and finally, the man of God possesses charity. He possesses charity. Look at verse 9. He distributes freely to the poor. I love that. This is a man of God who gives freely to the poor, to the poor and the neglected. He, he gives freely without restraint or condition. There is no fine prints. There is no expectation for compensation. You see, the man of God gives freely. He's not doing it for thank you notes, and he's not doing it for a tax deduction. The man of God is free. He is liberal. He is generous with his resources. Why? Because God has been generous to us in the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he who is rich became poor, so that we who are poor might become rich. You see, God was so generous to us in giving us his one and only son, so now you and I can be generous with our resources. We can give generously to the poor. So, men of God, where are you? Will you rise up and lead? In Genesis 3, when sin entered into the world, who did God call out? Adam, where are you? May I say to you, we live in a culture today that's asking the question, men of God, where are you? And my prayer is that we as a church would be filled with men who are willing to take a punch, willing to stand firm in Christ, willing to be humble and to wash feet, willing who are willing to, men who are willing to pray with tears in our eyes, unashamed of the gospel, ready to share the hope that we have in Christ. You know, for the, for the women, uh, Mother's Day, we gave out free ice cream. Well, men, we talked about it as a staff, and we decided, you know what, we're going to give you a challenge. And you're like, boo, I want Dr. Pepper. <laughs> Here's your challenge. Here's the impact point. This week, invest in your family by serving them in a creative and sacrificial way. This is, this is what we do. And so you do it this week, and then you do it the next week, and the next week, and over and over and over until Jesus calls you home. This is what we do, men. Let me ask you a question. Who won the 100-meter race in the 1924 Summer Olympics? You don't know. Because we only remember one man, Eric Liddell. Parents, instead of prioritizing 
a trophy for your kids that will be forgotten within 100 years? Why don't you invest in preparing for them to receive a trophy that is imperishable that will last for 100 million? As parents, this is what we do. We lead our kids. We point the way to Jesus. And when you and I become men of God who make much of Jesus, it is then that God will use us to have great impact for his glory. Thank you.